0: Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 3 of Reformed Podmatics. I'm Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And we are looking forward to digging into this topic of revival. And before we even <laughs> do that, we need to take care of maybe a little bit of housekeeping. And yeah. um, it's sort of an exciting thing that's happened in the last few days where I've been or we have been looking for some theme music for this podcast and um, had looked on lots of secular websites, just generic audio blurbs and things like that. And the thought popped to my mind, why don't we use some music from a Christian artist who we appreciate? Um, And so Jonathan Ogden is one of my very favorites. And I emailed this young man who is creating great Christian music in England, and he has agreed to allow us to use his music. (laughs) And so we want to encourage you, if you like the Sort of mood or <laughs> style uh, of our theme music. Definitely check Jonathan Ogden out. He actually has some other yeah. stuff as well. That's not as beatboxy, technoey <laughs> as what we use for this show, but uh, puts psalms to music. He has a lot of great albums about yeah. uh, that are just very worshipful.
0: The one that this one particularly comes off of is his latest full-length album, um, which is based on the 24 hours of the day. So there's 24 tracks, each one to sort of represent the mood of, the, of that time of the day, which I think is a really interesting concept album. It's really fun to listen to. Um, and it doesn't <laughs> take 24 hours to listen to it, so if you're wondering that. And it's
1: great <laughs> while you're working because it's thoughtful. Mm -hmm. It's uh, every once in a while there will be essentially just a worship song in the middle of it. Like I know Hour 7 is a great worship song about how the Lord makes every morning new. And so check it out. Jonathan Ogden, what a great guy for letting us use his stuff. Um, We are so thankful that if you were to ever listen to this, Jonathan, I hope (laughs) you are. And uh, we are Big fans of yours, uh, not yeah, just because you. you've let us do this, but uh, because you have great music too so um, secondly, I think the other housekeeping note is that I have listened to myself on <laughs> the previous podcast never and, a fun thing to do and I was hearing lots of ums and uhs and almost stuttering and so I am gonna work on that I promise you <laughs> to our listeners and I promise to Zach already that I'll try to it, it's something that I need to work on and Hopefully I've already done a little bit better in that regard on this podcast in the first two minutes, but it's a strange thing to hear yourself. (laughs) And when you hear yourself saying, um, and, uh, every, I don't know, every, um, two seconds, (laughs) every two seconds, (laughs) that's not so great. So (laughs) anyways, we are focusing today on this topic of revival and, obviously we're doing so from a reformed perspective. Hmm. Now, some people might even be a little bit alarmed by that topic being covered by reformed pastors because revival has such a specific and often unreformed definition in our church culture today.
0: We are wading into some interesting waters (laughs) here. And so maybe you're curious what what do we think about revival? And I guess that's really the whole point of this whole yeah, conversation. Um, so the question uh, is, yeah, what would a reformed revival
1: look like? Or do we even want to use that term is another yeah. question? And, and so uh, reformed and revival, to me, requires a definition of who the Holy Spirit is and what we believe the Holy Spirit does. Hmm. Even that already is probably moving things a little bit away from the modern definition of revival because there would be less interest in a theology of the Holy Spirit and more interest in how that worship service made me feel. Do I feel revived? And it's kind of pulled away from its theological roots almost immediately. So maybe even just in asking the question of what the Holy Spirit does, we're already showing where we're going to go with what we think a revival would be.
0: Yeah, so what are some of the things then that, What let's start with this. What are some misconceptions mm-hmm. people have about what the Holy Spirit's work is in the life of the Christian or in the life of a non-Christian?
1: Yeah, I would say broadly and maybe being a little bit critical, people would think the Holy Spirit makes me feel happy. Mm-hmm or the Holy Spirit makes me feel energized. The Holy Spirit is my spiritual shot of espresso.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like that mountaintop high people often will talk about when they go off to summer camp or something, and they have that extremely emotional experience. They have that good cry that they've been looking forward to all week. (laughs) Usually it comes on Thursday or Friday night. And they look forward to it all all year to the next year because mm. they want that Holy Spirit feeling, and it's yeah. so they've connected the Holy Spirit with their deep uh, expression of emotions, so or that they've gotten to that emotional place finally. Maybe they've been sort of uh, shut off for a long time, and now they've had that moment, and that is the Holy Spirit
1: feeling right. that they get. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't be opposed to. Right, making people happy and giving them an emotional high even. Mm-hmm. And, and that starts to disclose a little bit of some of my theology of revival that it could include a lot of high emo, heightened emotion yeah. and crying. Mm-hmm. And um, we find that in the scriptures, of course, uh, people crying out, what must I do to be saved? and And yet it's been absolutized. That's a word that I will often use when I find mm-hmm. that there's some kind of issue, um, that when something is is said to be, it has to be exactly this, or it's not it's a, an act of God or an act of the Holy Spirit, then we're, we start to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And I would say, generally, people would go to a exciting worship service, mm-hmm. or a conference usually, and come away and say, I was the Holy Spirit really met me there, which could be very true, but then they would go the next step and say, and when I don't feel this way, the Holy Spirit isn't really working powerfully in my life.
0: Yeah. God's presence is far, far from me, they will feel like.
1: Right. Yeah. And so we pastor a church where the worship we wouldn't call extremely charismatic and high energy. Mm -hmm. It's fairly straightforward in terms of the songs are picked are classic hymns, and some of the better modern praise songs. And so often I, if I am very spiritually prepared for the worship, and if I'm really clicking with the mm-hmm. words of the songs and the the Spirit is speaking to me, I find our very simple worship service can be very spiritually nourishing. Mm-hmm. However, even then, I wouldn't walk away from the service, or, or I rarely do, and say... That was just a mountaintop experience for me. And yeah. I'm the pastor, of course, um, but I don't know. that That is maybe an example of how it looks from week to week and just saying many weeks I will feel very good and very glad that mm-hmm. I went to worship and happy that I saw other believers and that I was convicted of sin and that I was reminded of assurance through the scriptures. That's what the Spirit does. He gives us fellowship. He gives us conviction. He... Um, turns us to Jesus Christ and opens his word to us. And there's a sense of kind of deep joy, you might say, not like Mm -hmm. necessarily a mountaintop, but a solid peace that is the result of having worshipped or done devotions or done some kind of service work in the work of the Holy Spirit that you you would sense afterwards the Lord blessed me today mm-hmm. through that activity.
0: Yeah. So there's all sorts of what we said misconceptions about the Holy Spirit. So yeah. Then what are the mm-hmm. things that the Holy Spirit does? What does He do um, in in our lives as Christians? Uh, what 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 is His work? What is His role in the the Godhead?
1: Yeah. What what would you say? I mean, I already answered sort of what He sure. So do. you did
0: you did say a few things. Yeah. I think moving and softening the hearts of sinful human beings, illuminating their minds and their their, their eyes of their hearts, uh, to use Paul's language from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's opening the eyes of their hearts to see the light of the gospel and the face of Jesus Christ. So he's at work in revealing Christ to us, Christ's work and Christ's person to us. And then I think the Holy Spirit is who gives us faith, um mm-hmm. I see that in Ephesians chapter 2 for example that uh, the the, the by, we are saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing uh it's not the the, the doing of the person to create mm-hmm. their own faith mm-hmm. grace is is a gift of god but so also is the faith that is given to us by god i think that's the work of the
1: holy spirit and that would be an especially reformed view
0: yeah and the holy spirit then also works with the person the the christian this is i'm, I'm thinking now of romans 8 in particular mm. in the work of sanctification uh, paul says um, that if we put to death the deeds of the body this is romans eight thirteen. if you put to death the deeds of the body if by the spirit you put to death the mm. deeds of the body you will live so i think mm-hmm. the spirit is absolutely essential in the process of sanctification Uh, That it's the spirit who guides us into sanctification speaking of guiding us the spirit again guides us into truth We come to know the scriptures through the work of the Holy Spirit And this is how we this is one of the ways we are sanctified is through the renewal of our mind by the word uh, Romans chapter 12 And so the spirit is at work in all of these processes um, Mm -hmm. from the very beginning all the way through Even unto glorification, but the work of the spirit I think we, if we think of the Godhead, we think of the Father sending the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit unites us to the Son that we may have share in fellowship with the Father. Mm. Uh, and so you can sort of think of this downward approach, Father to send the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit to us. The Spirit unites us to Christ and then lifts us up into fellowship with the Father. Um,
1: and in that sense, it's really unfortunate that we neglect the Holy Spirit because he is imminent to us, Hmm. right? Because we are in the world, we are in places where there is sin and suffering, and of course, God. you don't want to separate God too much from himself in the Trinity. However, if we Mm -hmm. can think of Needing to be with the Father and Jesus Christ being the way to the Father, and the Spirit being present, imminent, even living within us as we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That it's sad that we neglect the one who is so close to us, hmm. who is the Spirit even living within us and at work around us. And, and, you're working in your life, and I need to look for that. Yeah. Um, of course, that is the Father and the Son doing that through mm-hmm. the work of the Spirit in our lives. However, we just often miss that third person of the Trinity and neglect him to our own detriment, I would say.
0: Yeah, so I think of the beginning of Calvin's Institutes, book three, when he's talking about salvation specifically, he basically makes the point that, okay, Christ came and did what he did he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. this is good and it's the gospel mm. but how does it how does it reach get here? me yeah, yeah. here in now in my time 2020 mm. what what good does does that old act have for me now and it, the answer is that it's through the Spirit uniting us to Christ. Mystically, It's a mystical union or a spiritual union that we share now because of the Holy Spirit. But you're right. And th- that brings up another question while we're on this topic of the Spirit. How much do we, should we recognize the Spirit? Mm-hmm. It seems that often in the modern Pentecostal movement, yeah. a lot of the focus and emphasis is on the Spirit's presence. Whereas I think a Reformed pneumatology... In the, in the Reformed Pneumatology, we look beyond the Spirit. The Spirit mm, yeah. is uniting and pointing us to Christ, uh, and so, so I think word. that that differs. Would you agree with that? And
1: Yeah, it does uh, differ in that the Spirit, in our Reformed view, is he is not an end sort of unto himself, where he's the only person of the Trinity that we need in worship, I don't think that there are very many Christians who would actually say that because Jesus obviously still has a prime place in our minds Mm -hmm. as we worship. However, Reformed folks probably need more spiritual attention Hmm. and there would probably be, I wouldn't say some people who would need less, but they need to balance their spiritual attention. I would say not just with, not just with uh, the other members of the Trinity, the other persons of the Trinity, but with the Word. So often, this is what John Calvin talks about in the first section of the Institutes as well, where those who are more spiritually inclined, and this is really true today, are those who will often neglect or reject the Word, the written Word. Hmm. And so the Spirit, just as you said, points us to the father and the son but he also points us to the word and yeah. so uh, john calvin goes on this awesome rant in <laughs> in the institutes where he's talking about these these foolish devils essentially who will divide between word and or between mm. spirit and scripture and they'll use Sometimes the scriptures to say things the spirit wouldn't confirm, or the sp- the spirit to say things the scriptures don't confirm, yeah. and it's just a free for all, which is pretty prophetic and amazing that he would have. I, I would guess that's happening far more today than it would have been in oh, John yeah. Calvin's very structured Western European kind of yeah. uh, the the um, the impulse of his culture would have been more towards structure and scripture and orderliness. Yeah. And um, that can be a good thing. But the impulse of our culture today is more towards spontaneity and emotion. And so it's more likely that we're just going to take the Spirit and run versus correct that at times with what the actual Word of God says we should be focusing on. So maybe, maybe one thing that I would add to what the Spirit does is He gives encouragement Huh. And the comforter. That, that is and comfort. Yeah, he's the spirit of all comfort in hmm. Second Corinthians, and so uh, that is sometimes neglected as well, particularly in thinking about the work of the Spirit as we experience it. So, hmm. if I am comforted by someone, it's the Spirit. It's often it's we would think point. that's somebody doing something nice for me, you know, and mm-hmm. take the spiritual quotient out of it. Yeah. but that's the spirit ministering to me through a letter that an right. elderly lady from Turkey. Encouragement
0: gave me. is a gift of the spirit. Yeah. Um and so ultimately we can we can look at the spirit and not not only at that person the encourager.
1: Yeah, and so I love that we've established these things because now when we start to talk about revival, well, revival yeah. doesn't just mean super heightened emotions. Revival may mean I was revived when an elderly lady in church gave me a letter or a card Hmm. or a plaque that encouraged me so much and revived my soul and the spirit. It was the spirit working. It's not as though this lady said just the right thing and figured out the magic words for me. But I think that when we start to define what the spirit really does, then we start to understand a way fuller definition of what revival means. So that's, uh, that sort of leads into, I would say, an important question of historic revival.
0: Yeah, that's um, where I think we should go here. From. Yeah.
1: So what, obviously, I'm, I'm a big fan, as maybe listeners will learn or people from our church would know, that I'm a big fan of many First Great Awakening authors, particularly Jonathan hmm. Edwards and his Puritan contemporaries. And in reading Edwards' biography by James, George Marsden, he does it's a really one. great job in showing some of the struggles that, that Edwards went through, getting criticism from some of the other Reformed ministers, Congregationalist ministers, particularly of Boston and the Connecticut area, and Providence as well to some extent. Hmm. Um, and so he's being criticized, and at that time, it was the two camps were called the New Light Calvinists or the new the New Light ministers. That was Edwards. They were New Lighters, and there were the Old Light ministers um, who were often in Boston, and they were very suspicious of some of the charismatic manifestations of revival mm. in Northampton, where Edwards was or in some of the other places where George Whitfield and some of some other ministers were going to preach. Um, So would the, uh,
0: the old lighters I'm curious be, would we consider them as relatively orthodox reformed pastors and Christians Um, and pretty, pretty (laughs) like would we find ourselves in in brotherhood with them and would we feel sort of that connection to them?
1: Yeah, I, from reading, it's been a little while since I've read that chapter, but my impression was the answer would be a yes. They certainly were reformed in understanding of salvation and how God works in the world, hmm. and even things of like uh, church polity would okay. be, have been very reformed. But I would sort of link them up with cessationism, so they were they were sure. more like a okay, MacArthur that's a connection, um, and he would have fit probably pretty well in with those old lighters. And it's interesting because the same, the reason I bring that up in history is that the same drama has unfolded in our own lifetime between cessationists uh, often Mm -hmm. led by John MacArthur and those even within the reformed camp who are more pro revival. Uh, One guy that I really like on this is Tim Challies who uh, I think, fashions himself as a reformed charismatic and <laughs> kind of in the line of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, mm. and so those two guys, not, not so much that Tim Chalice is like on the level of MacArthur in terms of influence, but, yeah. um, but they could kind of represent different camps where we would say there can be an emotional, powerful manifestation of spiritual revival in a person's life and that would be a something to be sought something to be embraced that would be Mm -hmm. more the new lighter the edward the edwardsian approach to things like let's open ourselves up to the spirit right let's uh and and this spirit could be very unpredictable i think that's another one that old lighters probably wouldn't be as as happy with um more structured in terms of what the spirit would accomplish and and I don't say that we would want to go towards one extreme or the other, but to me, giving an ear towards the new lighters in our day would probably be not such a bad thing, given that hmm. the spirit does move in mysterious ways at times. And to me, the new light Calvinists are probably those who are more attuned to that mysterious work.
0: Okay. That's a good distinction of them. Um, And so What were some of the Amazing and good things The commendable things about the first Great awakening that we We see good revival Happening
1: in I would say awesome preaching Great Hmm. literature Yeah. So it was a
0: Some of the most profound books in American
1: Theological history come from that era It was an explosion of Great thought and really already started in the 17th century so the pilgrim's progress um oh, yeah author poets like ben Jonson, um john milton mm-hmm. um certainly there would be just this amazing explosion of deep thought on things of things of God, of of the scriptures. So that would be one thing, that there was an intellectual flourishing as a result yeah. of this revival. And the <laughs> downstream of that actually came the founding of the United States. Um, and I don't know if I would link them intrinsically, absolutely together. However, right. it was a time of cultural revival, a cultural... Yeah. There There was... Um, I know that there's a revival in Scotland, a kind of around this time actually Mm -hmm. in the six in the 1600s where John Knox um, comes in and from my understanding of what Scotland was like before that it was kind of a shady Edinburgh and some Mm -hmm. of the big cities were not good places to be and then from this revival comes uh, come hospitals and schools and churches that are doing a lot of good in the community. And so come, you know, action, activity uh-huh. came, came also in Scotland from that. And I know that that's also true of uh, many of our greatest universities in our country were founded by these, by these reformers, be, these reformed ministers and their, uh, you know, people who were being taught by them in New Haven and, um, yeah. Uh, Boston, some of those places.
0: What were some of the then the criticisms of yeah. the revivals happening in the first great awakening? I, I think uh, one answer might be that people thought they were too fanatical, too yeah. over the top, too emotional. This would be the, the old light Calvinists, yeah, right. it sounds like, yep. um, who are taking the position that they are, uh, I don't know, too given to. To their emotions and they're yeah
1: they get swept away yeah
0: and they're not being self controlled which would be seen as a fruit of the spirit um as Galatians says and so yeah what would be, what would what would be the criticisms of it
1: yeah well there would perhaps be some theological criticisms John Calvin for example was a cessationist um in that he, he yeah he, he that's interesting well from my reading of Calvin. He's not a cessationist quite in the same way that a MacArthur would be. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, MacArthur it feels like is re- reacting so strongly to what he calls charismatic chaos, and um, and maybe we need some of that reaction. Yeah, there, um,
0: I, I think some of, a lot of that is valid. But right. I get what you're saying. I would I would agree.
1: But um, some of those early those old lighters would have been reading Calvin and saying, no, the Spirit does, uh, does work in a way that is sort of within the traditional discipleship models of, mm-hmm. um, of the church, which I agree with, of course, but yeah. they would maybe then also limit some of the more charismatic manifestations of, for example, Jonathan Edwards preaching a sermon and people screaming. <laughs> what must I do to be saved? You know, how could I escape hell, the hell that you're describing, and sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yeah. And and so they would that would have made them uncomfortable, not just from a personal, but maybe or emotional, but maybe even from a theological perspective. <laughs> like like what is the spirit going to do that?
0: Do you think there's a sense in which the first great awakening a lot of the amazing preachers from it were preaching primarily to people that they mm. considered to be not Christians, yeah, good question. and that a lot of what the Old Light Calvinists were attempting to do was to preach to Christians, and so they were assuming regeneration, mm. whereas Edwards and Whitfield and others may not have been.
1: I that that is certainly possible. I, I maybe I don't know enough about their methodology, but. I would say, certainly, in open air preaching, which is what Whitfield did a lot, and Edwards did sometimes, like the sinners in the hands of an angry God in Enfield, was an open air sermon. Um, that would that would be done to appeal to, or to a, attract the attention of some passersby or some people from the town, or yeah. you know, some people want to come and check out this phenomenon that they've heard about um hmm. i don't know i th- that's a good question because then that will shape how we understand revival today like is revival supposed to be targeted towards the christian who needs to be revived and revived <laughs> and brought from glory to glory as yeah, john yeah. 1 says or is it revival primarily a method of conversion yeah and maybe society wide right the second great awakening right
0: yeah Is it this grand event that happens outside the church? Is it a mass conversion? A Billy Graham
1: crusade. Right.
0: So that goes back to our our definition of revival. I think for me, to be honest, when I hear the word revival, I I grew up uh, in the evangelical sort of vanilla world. Um, And so I would hear revival from time to time. I wasn't in a particularly charismatic context, though I did have a lot of charismatic friends. And for a long time, I thought the word revival was... Totally fine, totally good. I think we, I thought we should really search for revival, pray for revival, and then I began to sort of, I guess you could say, take the more MacArthur tack and be pretty against revival in the sense of cooking up our emotions, having these seeking after these uh, mountaintop experiences. I began to be really skeptical of of emotionalism, Mm. and so when I would go to camp. I would no longer allow myself to be swept up into the emotion of the worship music and the preaching, which would always sort of come to an altar call. I began to think myself too intellectual and advanced for this. And to this day, I still, I I guess I hold similar thoughts to this in regards to revival. I like to see that that the, the, or I tend to, to view all of church history under the understanding that the Spirit is always at work. But I think that this can go too far in my own self, if I'm being honest, that it can tend towards a sort of static and stagnant view that Mm -hmm. the church is always on this upward trajectory, that there are not really moments where things die away and come back. But I think if you look at church history, this is just false. There are moments in the church's history where things get pretty bad and pretty dire and dark or even corrupt yeah and i'm someone who loves church history i love i love reading the early fathers i love reading medieval theologians and the reformation I don't have the opinion that Martin Luther revived or brought back this dead church, that it was dead for 1,600 years (laughs) uh, or 1,500 years. I don't think that that's the case at all, but there are moments when things get dark and bad in the church. I think the Spirit of God is always at work, but I think it's true that there are definite revivals that happen. Mm. And so I guess I have a more balanced position now. Part of me wants to be a cynic and totally deny or be suspicious of every revival that I hear about. I'm very suspicious of people concocting revival. I don't think you can plan for a a revival next Saturday. (laughs) Meet here at 10 a.m. for revival. It's going to happen. I don't think that that's right. But I do think that revival comes through the ordinary means of grace. Some people, I think, as an attitude or a disposition, They Mm. like ordinary things so much that they are very, very put off by any sort of emotional displays. And so it's sort of an attitudinal issue uh, with a lot of the Reformed church today. Uh, And, you know, I've been to Reformed conferences, and it seems like I'm the only one who's not wearing a three-piece suit. (laughs) Uh, And that's just sort of our tradition, right? It's just a very—we're a very formal tradition. We have a very deep intellectual history and structure, and that's a good thing. That's actually what drew me to Reformed theology in many ways. Um, but I, I think as I've come around in later years, I've seen more of a balance, mm. and I've not been so much of a, of a curmudgeon when it comes to <laughs> revival. And so I think revival is something we should be seeking for, but it, again, it all depends on what we mean by revival.
1: It, it's helpful to distinguish also between corporate revival and and personal, individual Hmm, revival. That's that's a great point. And so my emphasis, maybe I need to be more clear about this in my preaching, would mostly be on individual. And Hmm. my understanding for a corporate revival would be when many individuals are hearing the voice of God and being having their conscience stirred and convicted and receiving a fresh understanding of the grace of God and a fresh understanding of how God is calling them to do something in the world. Um, Hmm. And so it's like a a gathering of individuals, if that might make sense, instead of just like this thing that moves over a crowd and then, Right. I don't know. I don't know if that's the way that I feel like revival is talked about in many charismatic circles is that it's sort of this we're part of this group where the spirit is working and there it has less to do with your sin and your the grace God applies to you as an individual and what God calls you to now go and do than it does with this corporate thing that happens when we get together. Yeah. So I would I would say the corporate blessing can happen when a lot of individuals are revived and blessed by the spirit transformed. I mean, those are all Mm -hmm. words that I would use interchangeably. But when it starts to become, like what you said, revival at 10 (laughs) a.m., then that's putting all the emphasis on the corporate gathering, which can, according to the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney, kind of produce revival But we would disagree with that from a reform perspective.
0: What would you say, just real quick, would be some of the differences between the first and the second Great Awakening?
1: Uh, good theology, <laughs> <laughs> agreed. Uh, uh, well, and not even necessarily reformed theology, because like there there are revivals where, like, I would count Wesley's sure flourishing of Methodism as a revival certainly woke up the Anglican church in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and challenged them in England and then it just exploded through the world as Methodism is now everywhere in the world yeah Um, and so yeah I would say good biblical teaching that will draw people to the one true God as he Represents himself and as he reveals himself in the scriptures, versus obviously the second great awakening, straying from that pretty pretty mm-hmm. dramatically. And I know you've done a lot more research on that than me. Yeah, so it seems
0: to me, and I've done less research on the first, so it's hard for me to make the comparison. But it seems to me that the first great awakening depended upon what we would normally call the ordinary means of grace, and particularly upon the preaching of the gospel yeah. and of the word, um, and so. That was a big emphasis, was was preaching. And that goes back to our pneumatology. And what is our reformed pneumatology of preaching? How do we understand the spirit at work in preaching? The difference then, to me, it seems like, with the Second Great Awakening, is that it was a much more man-centered approach. The Second Great Awakening, I think, takes a lot of the ideas from the First Great Awakening. A lot of new things, because of the revival in the 18th century became plausible in the 19th century. So people had this understanding of, wow, God's spirit can really work. Massive societal change can take place. Mm -hmm. uh, And and it's exciting. And so they had seen this. And I think generation, it was about two generations later, depending on how you count it. Mm -hmm. But the second great awakening comes around. And it seems like they were trying to concoct all of the, uh, excitement of the first Great Awakening, but there weren't so much doing it about or depending on specifically on biblical preaching. Now, it would come down to the preacher. The preacher was incredibly important, but it was more about concocting or creating a a particular environment, sort of like setting the spiritual thermostat to a particular temperature so as to create a place for people to feel the burden of their sins and come forward and and sit on the anxious bench and in fact one of my favorite books from this period is called the anxious bench by john williamson nevin one of the strongest critiques of revivals in Mm. the 19th century and so he he talks in depth about what this sort of service looked like he said in college he had grown up as a presbyterian catechized and raised in the church in america and In college, went away to, I think it was Union Seminary or Union College. Um, I could be a little fuzzy here on the details, but he got swept up in the revivals and Mm -hmm. came to uh, question whether or not all of his Mm -hmm. past profession of faith was legitimate because now he's being told that he's a sinner. And he he describes in detail what one of these services would have looked like. Um, And one of the things that he mentions is that uh, he— that the preachers would specifically try to wear on people's consciences so that they would feel the pressure of their sins. And then he would say, if you are feeling this, please come forward to this anxious bench. And so this person would, would come forward and sit on this bench in front of all, and they would sort of be pressured to confess all of their sins in front of everyone. And then to therefore have a very visible show of repentance and coming to Christ. And, and, he says that often this will happen. People will feel the pressure of their sins. People will feel their guilt, and they think, if only I can get up enough courage to go up to this bench and sit on it and tell everyone that I will be regenerated and I will be saved, and I can, I will therefore not have to worry about my salvation. So if only I can do this thing,
1: and so it's like a display of your
0: transformation. Yeah, exactly. And so it was not so much putting your trust in Christ; it was putting your trust in your ability to go forward yeah. and to and to bravely reveal all of your sins <laughs> to everyone bear your soul and yeah. to and then that was going to bring your transformation and nevin goes on to explain that this happens all the time there's hundreds and hundreds of people that do this but follow their lives look at how they are transformed and you will see most of the time they are not and then they become a very skeptical and suspicious of any spiritual, sure. religious, anything.
1: So it's worse than having done nothing.
0: And so this is yeah. why these regions where Finney and his his sort of comrades were uh, really influential would be, become known as the burned-over district. It was people who were now disillusioned by the gospel because they thought that they had heard the gospel but then realized that they lacked its power, they didn't really have the spirit yeah. because their trust wasn't in Christ, and therefore... People began to really question religion, stopped coming to churches entirely, and it was really
1: devastating
0: for those regions.
1: Yeah, you see that happening a lot in Latin America now concerning um, the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church gives uh, promises, of course, of spiritual life, and, and, and hopefully people would receive that through Christ. But often case it's sort of a church without legs. It's a church that, hmm. that isn't doing as much, and so therefore many people in Latin America I know who will then meet a reformed person hmm. and hear that we baptize children would automatically associate us with sort of the, the dead Catholic church right. of their neighborhood. <laughs> and it's like, I don't want to have anything to do with that because that has no life in it. Yeah, It's it's kind of the same thing essentially happening today throughout many Latin American places, like mm-hmm. I know in Costa Rica, uh, that happens quite a bit. So um, regarding revival today, I mean, obviously we, or I, I at least have some interest in seeing something like the First Great Awakening happen uh, yeah. again. Um, I would love for that, just in that I would love for the Book of Acts to be repeated and many of the things that happened there um maybe not everything happening there as the apostles are no longer doing ministry in the world and so it would obviously look different (laughs) but um but yet at the same time people like the philippian jailer or lydia who hear the gospel and they welcome the church into their home they the life turns around they now Follow Christ, and Amen. they're going to be church planters and supporters of Paul, and so forth. And I mean that—that's sort of how I imagine uh, revival occurring today. Um, that would be great. <laughs> any any um, other thoughts on maybe what that would look like today in a in a local church in a Reformed church, particularly what what would revival now look like in a in a good yeah.
0: way. Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that because I, w- I was wanting to share a quote from John Nevin yeah. Um, yeah. on that same book. Towards the end of the book, after this long critique of the Second Great Awakening and its revivals, Nevin says this, Churches that hate revivals may be said emphatically to love death. Mm. Every faithful pastor will be concerned to see his ministrations crowned with such special effusions of God's spirit and will stand prepared at the same time to hail with joy the first indications of their approach, yeah. and to put forth special efforts for the promise of turning them into the largest account. These efforts, however, he says, will be in the ordinary form of his general ministrations and services. So his general general ministry yeah, and services. Yeah, so preaching, discipleship, uh, teaching, what what, yeah, what Nevin calls the, the system of the catechism, so raising catechism they're using young people to know the faith through the catechism, which doesn't really just mean that catechism, it's more of that ordinary, slow, mm. intentional uh, discipleship form that the church has historically taken uh, to really root its people in the catechism and, or in the faith and then also in taking communion and being baptized as a child and so on. All mm. of these ordinary means of grace, Nevin says, are the way towards this revival. And yeah. there may at times be be moments when the Spirit pours Himself out and blesses these ordinary acts, these ordinary measures.
1: And it, I, I maybe as we start to close, I think it's good to put a human face on a lot of these things that we can talk about theology and and pneumatology and how <laughs> revivals have happened in the past and think a bit more theologically, philosophically, but as i think about just people who are dying spiritually mm-hmm. they are miserable the catechism uses that word misery a lot and and it's true and we see it now maybe a little bit more because of coronavirus that the misery yeah. has come to the to the top of people's lives and is now right. showing and that's that's the world that i know edwards encountered that's certainly the world that calvin would have encountered Martin Luther would have encountered miserable people. And um, he was driven by God, I would say, to preach the gospel so that they would be revived. And that's what I mean by revival is people being born again, people whose eyes are opened. Wow, there's fellowship here. There's uh, truth here. There's There's life there's, there's life in this place, there's life in Christ there's meaning um, <laughs> yeah and and so I I kind of take that into for example, the prison when I go there on Wednesdays mm-hmm. and I just I see this dark place it is a palpably spiritually dark place and yet in this chapel these guys come in and they have some experience of the presence of God through simple teaching about, Um, saying no to wanting to lie and wanting to tell the truth and be found in Christ. Just simple things that very elementary lessons, but all of a sudden they're starting to see this is life. Mm -hmm. This is good. And so that's my desire, even talking about this on an early episode of our podcast is to me, like I would agree with Nevin that we want to see life from where people were, we want to see dead people come to life. And, and so I, when, when the cessationists get too excited, I would say sometimes they can border on sounding against that, you know, because, well, that can get out of control. (laughs) Well, um, I agree that the second great awakening was bad and that many quote unquote revivals today are manufactured. And, Mm-hmm. I'm not even so sure. I think Billy Graham's crusades were done methodologically in the best possible way. Right. But at the same time, I just want God to move. And, and that's the Martin Lloyd Jones uh, listener in me saying, <laughs> just, just so that God might be glorified, that's what we want to see.
0: Yeah. And what does Paul say in pretense or in truth? Right. The, the yeah. gospel is being preached. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And in that, we, we,
0: we are joyful. Uh, yeah. Because we—that's the—that's the end goal of revival—is to yeah see people come alive, reborn. Uh, I think of Psalm one being like the righteous person planted by streams of living water, yeah, um, and flourishing and and bearing fruit in season. That's what it's all about. And if that's what we define as revival, who wouldn't want that? Sure. Who 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 doesn't want to see that? That's what the church exists to do is to bring light to dying or life to dying people to dead people, yeah. and to see the Holy Spirit move in their lives and resurrect them.
1: Yeah, And I think it's just key to kind of stop with that, because that this needs a human face. Uh, every theological topic needs some connection to real people for it to have real use and so revival is, is great to talk about or even like the work of the spirit okay the spirit produces repentance and forgiveness it's like i hope that yeah, on the next person i encounter i can move in that direction as the spirit works in me um and so th- these aren't just theological ideas which i know reform people are often accused of holding on to cold theology <laughs> um Hopefully, this is going to send us into action, and maybe even for anybody listening, just to pray for revival in your own life, to see your sin very clearly and to repent of it and to want to live in the fullness of the presence of God. And revival essentially is a product of that. It's not really hmm. the the goal as much as just to, to be with God.
0: Right, that's and exactly right. In order right. to be
1: with God, one must be made holy, and revived. Yeah, and so, it's not
0: the goal, but it is a product, a byproduct. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's and, really good.
1: And so, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of complicated. It's tr- a little <laughs> bit tricky because on one hand we want to see it, but on, a- and we even want to see the visible manifestation of it, I would yeah. say. It's great when that happens because God is glorified when the world sees a revived people. However, if we don't see that huge Holy Spirit revival uh, church that is the North the Church in Northampton in the 1730s. If we don't see that, it then doesn't mean that our, it's not it's, that it's, it doesn't dead. Mean it's not happening. Yeah, and, right. uh, That people right. are, can be revived, um, moved from glory to glory as they they hear the gospel, as they celebrate the sacraments, as they spend time in Christian fellowship with each other. So, amen. Yeah. So hopefully that's helpful to you guys as you listen to this topic and stick with us. Uh, make sure you subscribe. And hopefully, you will be looking forward to more of these podcast episodes. But uh, until now, un- until then, uh, have a great day.
0: Yep. Grace and peace, guys. Bye. See ya.